Welcome back from the break. I took a little break and had a drink and a piece of chocolate. So I'm, I'm uh, happy for both of those. And mostly I'm happy that we got to practice together. <clears throat> and again, I wanna remind you that these trainings and practices like the compassion meditation that we just did need to be individualized and work within your own heart and mind to find the language and the images that most naturally work for you. Trust yourself in this. And in that way, the teachings that I'd like to offer tonight, as usual, are not something you have to remember and take notes for the quiz that comes later. They're really a reminder a reminder to your heart, to your understanding of things that are important. And listen in that way, if they touch you in that way and remind you beautiful, and if they seem not right or off base, just let them go. So here we are in May, 2021. And when we sit and meditate, in general, not just doing the compassion practice, but the practice of mindfulness itself, which the Buddha spoke of as all helpful, we take our seat in this human form halfway between heaven and earth. And with mindfulness, the point is not to create a special meditative experience, those may come or may not, they come and go. The point is actually to open to the mystery of our human incarnation, to gaze with the eyes and the inner eyes and the heart at the unbearable beauty and the ocean of tears that make up human life. And I think we're all really especially aware of it in this past year plus of the pandemic that in some places is winding down, hallelujah. But in other places, it's not. I went to see my grandson who's two and a half years old. It's so shocking. You know, he's used to seeing Baba Jack um, on a little glass screen on the phone. And all of a sudden, I'm like a live person. And he is to me. It's like moving from virtual reality to the real thing. Um, and it's weird back again, doing social things with friends who are vaccinated a little bit and still being tentative and trying to figure out, well, how do I want to live now after this year plus of being sequestered? And sadly, the reality is that the pandemic isn't ended. I was traveling recently, Trudy and I, with these dear friends, Larry and Pierre Brilliant. He's one of the world's great epidemiologists working with the WHO and the administration and so forth. And he made it clear that all the variants that are coming in different parts of the world and the unvaccinated people in so many countries that have not been given vaccines, even though we could. 
and the huge spread in India and Brazil and Turkey and so forth, that this will be with us for a long time. And us means us as human beings, because we can't isolate ourselves in one country or one continent and close our doors. We are all connected. We know this, but now the pandemic shows it in bright lights in an unmistakable way. But it's not just this huge change. They're the ongoing conflicts. And I hear from them. I hear from friends in Burma and Myanmar because I've been engaged in trying to help in modest ways. And the situation is terrible. And then I hear from friends in Palestine and Israel. And it too is heartbreaking living under rocket fire on all sides. The cruelty, the barbarity of it, and not just there, whether it's Syria or South Sudan and so many places in the world. What are we doing as human beings? And at the same time, there is also the incredibly deep need to sustain the movements for social justice and racial justice, the delusion and the suffering from racism and injustice, it's very easy for us to slip back into the unconscious ways that have oppressed so many people and kept so many of us locked in separate consciousness. I don't need to talk about climate change, or maybe I do the whole time. But we're woven in that too, in this inescapable garment of destiny, as Dr. King said. And it's not just out there, it's our own personal lives, our own share of the 10,000 joys, the 10,000 sorrows, of praise and blame, of gain and loss, of fame and disrepute, of pleasure and pain, of birth and death. I have all these friends who are sick or dying because I have a big circle of people who've been friends or colleagues or students. And maybe because I'm 75 years old and I know a lot of other people in my age range all of this happening. So then there's a question with it all. How do we find a peaceful heart in the midst of beauty and catastrophe? Our experience, our human experience is not a mistake. As William Blake said, joy and woe are woven fine, a clothing for the soul divine. When this we rightly know, through the world we safely go, for we were made for joy and woe. There's a passage in Thomas Merton, the great Christian mystic writer uh, that speaks of his visit to Polonarua 
in Sri Lanka in his Asian journals. And Polonarua is a temple where these huge marble statues of the Buddha seated and lying down were carved out of a marble cliff, giant statues with incredible beauty and a kind of spiritual power that Merton said he'd almost never seen in any other work of art, so powerful they are. Walking across the, the green grass up to these statues, he said, I gazed at these enormous faces and at the eyes of the awakened one. And I could feel in that gaze, the consciousness that was seeing it all seeing every possibility, a peace in the midst of it, the peace not of making an argument with anything, not the peace of emotional resignation, but the eyes of great compassion and of the emptiness that could see all things rising and passing in the space of consciousness itself, in the awakened heart. It's said in the stories and texts that are told that after the Buddha's enlightenment, he traveled and walked the dusty roads of India for 45 years, teaching and meeting people and eating and gathering and creating a community. And all the time he did so in Nirvana. What could that mean? Does that mean nirvana is someplace else? We hear that and think, oh, if I go to the Himalayas or I have the, the right meditative experience or take the right substance or something, I'll get to someplace and that's nirvana. But there he was, trudging through the dusty roads, the rainy season, walking and sitting and speaking, being well and being sick, tending his community, all in nirvana, the compassionate one, the liberated one. How does this relate to you, to me? So here's the beginning of an answer, a key to understanding this and what it means for peace of mind and a free heart. And it's a question, maybe a strange question for that. Who are you? Or as Zen Master Sumsan Sansanin used to say, what am I? That was, our, that was our practice to sit and say, what am I? What am I? Who are you? For this is the question of our human mysterious experience. And one of the things that's most remarkable about our human experience in Buddhist psychology, it's one of the key elements to understand is that we consciousness can create an identity that feels separate from the rest me, mine, in this head, in this body, in this bag of skin. We believe this is who we are. 
but the whole sense of identity is up for grabs. You're invited to look, to examine. Suppose, for example, I hold up my two hands and this hand is me and this hand is something I'm going to explore. So I take this hand and I feel it and I notice that one of the nails on this hand is a little long and needs to be clipped. And the skin back here is a little bit rough or you know, is aging. So in this case, this is me, Jack, Baba Jack, as I'm called by Desmond. And this is the object of my attention. Now I switch and I feel with this hand. Now this is me and I'm noticing, oh, the palm has these creases in it. And it feels slightly moist as if maybe in speaking and talking with you, there's some sense I don't feel anxiety. I really love doing this, but there's some sense that my body's engaged and alive somehow in it and it's warm where I am. And all of a sudden, it's me feeling this other thing. We can put our identity anywhere. We can create ourself in so many ways. But who are you? Who are we? I remember sitting in a retreat hall with Ramdas at one point, and there was a man who'd come to practice a quadriplegic lying on a bed that he could move with one hand a little bit somehow to guide himself around. Ramdas was teaching, and at one point he indicated he wanted to speak, and someone went over and held the microphone to his mouth. And he said, Ramdas says, we are not our body. Hallelujah. And you could feel the joy in him to know that he was not that quadriplegic body. But who are we? Who are you? There's so many roles we identify with. Yes, we can identify with our body. We can identify with our emotions, but the thing is they keep changing. We can identify with our thoughts, but that's more troublesome. There's so many of them and they're going so many directions. And then we have our roles. Here's a woman, a physician, a doctor. When she's in the hospital, she's treated as the doctor. But when she gets home, She's not the doctor anymore. She takes off the white coat and the stethoscope. She's mom to her three children, an entirely different role. And then she is a, a lover or a wife or a partner for her lover, another role. And then she calls her parents who are going through a hard time. And all of a sudden she's a daughter. And that week she goes to the school board that she's on and people look at her, is she a liberal or a conservative? And then they look at her and try to see her ancestors. Are they from India or Nigeria or Ireland 
What is her skin color? What is her sign? Is she a Virgo, a Libra, Sagittarius? And she could identify with all or any of these as you can, but they're temporary, you know. They keep changing like water they change, our roles, our thoughts, our emotions. Alan Watts wrote a book called On the Taboo of Not Knowing Who You Really Are. He wrote about how in this society we're taught to pay attention outwardly, to consume, to compete, to be with others, to act in these ways, to get educated, to be in the drama of the society. But we're never taught to turn back inside, to step out of our identities. And this is the place of freedom. This was the Buddha wandering for 45 years across India. One of his titles is the one thus come or the one thus gone, not fixed in any way, but just the openness that came and disappeared. It's a shift to vastness and presence. Now this sounds kind of philosophical as I'm talking about it, but I want it to be practical and real because it's a profound invitation to you, to me. Let's do a little meditation practice for 20 seconds that I've done before with you. And here's the instruction. When I say start, I want you to stop or cease being aware. When I say begin, do whatever you can to not be aware. Squunch your eyes, hold your ears, you know, do whatever you need. All right, are you ready? Don't be aware, begin. Of course, it becomes clear you can't do it. Because who you are is awareness itself. You are consciousness. You are this loving awareness that was born into this body that is the witness of emotions that come and go and thoughts that puts on the roles and identifies with your body in all its phases when it's a tiny infant and a little child and a middle-aged athlete and an older person. Who you are, my teacher Ajahn Chah called the one who knows, the knowing itself. There's a text or a story of someone coming to see the Buddha and asks him a profound question and says, you are a Buddha, is that correct? And the Buddha answers, yes, an awakened one. He says, how can I practice so that I will not be seen by the king of death? So this is a profound question. How do I live 
so that I will not be subject to death. And the Buddha responds, for one who is not identified with this body and heart and mind, with the physical body, the emotions, the thoughts, perceptions that make up this life, for one who does not take this to be themselves, such a one will not be seen by the king of death. And in this last week or two, I've tended virtually to a couple of dear ones who were dying, passing away. And in doing so, they were people who I was very close to. I had the privilege of the last whispered in the ears instructions, even as they lay in a coma in some cases, but you know, people in coma can hear and remember. I've seen it so many times as people wake up and remember what happened. And I would say, let go, let go into the clear light, into the ocean of love, loving awareness, that is who you really are. You are returning to the source. You've had this incarnation with its blessings, its difficulties. You completed this and now it's time to let your heart be at peace and let go into the clear, pure light, the ocean of love. To know that who you are is undying, loving awareness itself. You don't have to wait till you die because the reality is that we are born every day. Every day at breakfast, you have a new incarnation every moment. And to see that consciousness, to see the spirit, we'll use that word, that's taken birth in each being is an extraordinary thing. Thomas Merton again writes so exquisitely about it coming out of his monastery and walking down the street in the middle of the town. He said, all of a sudden, it wasn't the monastery where I was looking for holiness, but in this moment, I could see the secret beauty behind the eyes of everyone walking by. That place of consciousness and love, the child of the spirit that was born into each one of them, they were shining like the stars for me. What else is there to see but this, to see the beauty behind the eyes? to know that we get to have this human incarnation and it's a great dance. Who are we really? Who are you? The one listening, the one who knows. When we see in this way, there's an original innocence. And as I've talked about in India, sometimes, the description is this, 
you go to see a great master, whoever she or he might be. And they look at you and there you are with all your complexity and your pleasures and pains and your longings and hopes and your fears with your shame and desire and greed and your love and creativity and vision. And they look so deeply at you with what is called the glance of mercy with a love that sees underneath all those layers and rolls, looking right into your heart, into that consciousness that you really are, with great love, loving it all. Not caste or race or creed or birth or accomplishments or lack of accomplishments, Oh, nobly born reminds the Buddha to you, to me. Oh, you who are the sons and daughters of the awakened ones. Remember who you really are. Remember your original dignity and beauty. I love the poem from William, from uh, William Stafford, where he writes of someone, the one line I talk about where he writes this person who felt lost in the rain and then remembered maybe I'm a king maybe I'm a queen you are oh nobly born remember who you really are now this week is the celebration of Vesak, Vesaka Puja it's called. And in the Theravada tradition from which our mindfulness training comes from Burma and Sri Lanka and Thailand and Laos and Cambodia and so forth. It celebrates the birth, the enlightenment and the death of the Buddha all on the same day. Very tidy way to live a life to be born and die and enlightened on the same day. And I've always been curious on why would it be celebrated this way? And I believe it's celebrated this way because we're always being born and always dying each day, each moment. We're reborn anew in this mysterious, timeless human life. We take birth, take a new identity for a time, and then it passes away. And so our birth and death and our freedom or enlightenment are here, just where we are, as they were for the Buddha, as he walked across India in the state of freedom and nirvana. Okay beautiful poetry, but how does this really help? We've just gone through tax season. We still have to wear a mask some of the time, or we don't know who's vaccinated and who's not, and should we wear a mask? We have teenagers in our family who are struggling more than teenagers usually did through the pandemic. We invested in cryptocurrency, and it just tanked for the week. 
our marriage has gotten a little bit stale or we feel estranged from a friend. We feel guilty because we're not doing enough for the people with COVID in India or Brazil, enough for those most hard hit by the pandemic. We have all these things that weigh on our hearts and that we have to deal with. How do we do it? I remember this cartoon of Peanuts and there's Charlie Brown lying in his bed saying, sometimes I lie awake at night and ask, where have I gone wrong? And then a voice says to me, this is gonna take more than one night. You know, that great humor of Charles Schultz. So here's the story. There was a ardent young monk who practiced day and night in order to get enlightened, struggled and struggled and nothing happened. And finally he decided, I just have to get out of the monastery. And he'd heard there was some wise old hermit at the top of the mountains. And so he began to walk the trails that went way into the mountains. And there, part way up, he saw an old wise woman walking down the path, carrying a great bundle. And he realized she was the one he'd heard about, this sage. And he asked her, he said, I've been struggling and searching for enlightenment. Do you know anything of this? And she gazed at him with great tender eyes and dropped her bundle on the ground <coughs> as if to say, just let it go. Whatever you want, whoever you are, whatever you imagine, just let go and be, just let it go. And in his case, it was the right moment. And he realized what we all can learn that he could let it go. Not try to be something, not to even look for enlightenment, but just to be. And then he looked at her and he said, so now what? And she reached down and picked up the bundle and continued to walk down toward town. And the paintings that are done of this wise sage in different forms show her entering the marketplace with what is called bliss bestowing hands, going into the shops and speaking with people and <coughs> being part of the community <coughs> and all that she does, all that she touches is with a free and loving heart. So yes, we are this loving awareness itself. And yes, we have this human life. Suzuki Roshi Zen master puts it this way. <coughs> Excuse me. He says, you're perfect just as you are and there's still room for improvement. And it's one of those brilliant statements 
by a wise Zen master. <coughs> oh well. From the place of the one who knows, you become the witness to it all. You remember vastness, like the woman that I worked with who had to go home to her family in Illinois in the old family home because her father's had Alzheimer's and her mother who was taking care of him had fallen and broken her hip and the house was a wreck when she got there and she realized they couldn't live there anymore. She had to move them out, all those struggles. And she began to weep for her parents and the loss and it was her childhood home. And then she walked out into the hills near her family home and got to the hilltop in the daytime. And she could see her house and the neighborhood and the farmland that stretched around and the cumulus clouds in the sky and the vastness of that Midwestern landscape. And she became quiet and tender inside. And as she breathed, she realized she wasn't the only one whose parents were aging. She wasn't the only one whose life was in change. She could feel that she was part of thousands of others who loved and cared for their parents, even as they aged. And even as they needed new levels of help. And even as they had to let go all of them together of the way that it was to make room for the next moment and the next thing. And she realized, ah, oh, I'm not alone in this. This is the human incarnation. This is human life itself with its joys and its sorrows and its seasons. And she could see with the eyes of wisdom, the one who knows. So you see in this way, and then you go back and you mop the floor and you tend the people around with care and a loving heart. And you do it beautifully. We learned this in the monastery that you took care with your bowl and your robes and all the things that were given to you and you swept the path beautifully, not in order to have a clean path, but to express the care and love that you had learned, even as you became vast in your consciousness, in your heart. The goal being to be where you are with an inner freedom and love. And then again, as William Blake said, if one is to do good, it must be done in the minute particulars. General good is the flea of the plea of the hypocrite, the flatterer, and the scoundrel. So you know who you are. Underneath it all, under all those robes and roles and thoughts and feelings, you become the one who knows. And then you enter with caring and bliss-bestowing hands. Now, as we get toward the end of this talk, and there's a bit of a ways to go still, 
I want to talk about a book that I've been reading, and the title will be put in the chat for those who want. It's called Novice to Master, the story of Soko Morinaga, who became a great Zen master and died a couple of decades ago in the 1990s. And he trained in the Rinzai Zen tradition. And he described after World War II, his parents died not long after the end of the Second World War and the whole society was in a huge upheaval and he didn't know what to do. And he decided to enter a Zen monastery and understand himself and the world. And he went to work in the garden of the monastery because after he bowed and was received, Master Zwigan said, you're here, you need to help. And he said, what can I do? And Zwigan said, clean the garden. So he went and he raked all the leaves. There was lots of fallen leaves that had happened from a storm that passed and other things. And he raked a big pile of leaves and tended the paths and it he was kind of proud of himself because it looked so good what he'd done. <clears throat> and he called the Roshi and he said, where should I put this trash? The pile of leaves and twigs that he'd raked up. And the Roshi shouted at him, which is part of that Rinzai tradition. There is no trash. There is no trash. And then the Roshi looked at him and said, you don't believe me. Here's what I want you to do. Go and get a big sack and take all the leaves out of this pile and put them in it because we'll use them to make a fire under the warm, hot bath that the monks use. So he brought the bag, took all the leaves out and put them in there. But then there was this whole big pile of underneath them of stones and clods of earth, even though the leaves and the twigs had been taken out. And he thought, well, surely this is useless. And the master said, now sort out and pick out all the stones because with the great rains, where the rain comes down, the rain spouts from the building, the stones have been mislodged, dislodged. And with a whole basket of stones, he was directed to place the stones back and fix where they had been dislodged until it was perfectly smooth and the rainwater could flow easily. And he went back and he saw the master had then picked up all the sand and the clods of dirt that were there in another basket and was going along the path looking for small depressions and dips where at night, if one wasn't careful, one might fall or misstep and he placed them carefully one after another. And when it was done and there was nothing left of the pile, the master paused with him and said, from the first in people and in things, there's no such thing as trash. What a teaching. What a beautiful teaching in people and in things. There's no such thing as trash. There's just this world that we have to tend in our way. <clears throat> now, the story of Morinaga Roshi 
is primarily one of very hard training. Poor food, little sleep, a tremendous amount of surrender over years till gradually, gradually with all his self-doubt and insecurity and grief and stupidity, he learned to accept himself and feel confident in his true self. And the subtitle of the book is an ongoing lesson in the extent of my own stupidity. So it's not just my word, but his. And at the end of the book, at the end of his Zen journey and story, he speaks of an older woman, older than himself, named Miss Okamoto. He said when she was 40 years old, she'd come into the monastery and wanted to serve in whatever she kept, way she could. Yes, she would meditate, sit with a koan, but she took it upon herself to wash the robes of the master and the senior monks. She took it upon herself to plant and tend the garden beds, to pickle the vegetables, to cook. She was incredibly devoted to the monastery and her practice was this one of working from morning to light, serving in a very dedicated and full way. And she lived a strict and upright life such that when the young new novices were sent to talk to Miss Okamoto, they were a little scared of her because she was so intent and serious. And then in her 70s, she called to the Zen master. She said, you know, I've asked very little of you. Now, Zwigan had died and Morinaga had become the Zen master of the temple. I asked so little, but I'm terrified because I was told I have metastatic cancer. And it turns out that I'm grateful for these teachings, but I realize I must have failed because I'm really afraid. I'm afraid of dying. How have I gone wrong? How have I gone wrong? And now I will read you some excerpts from Morinaga's description of his work with her. And it's more than I usually read in a talk, but there's something to me that's so compelling that I hope it will be for you. Although Miss Okamoto, Okamoto, who beseeched me, was 24 years my elder, her earnest confession prompted me to bluntly call her attention to something that had been weighing on my, on my mind about her. This woman had led a flawless, commendable life, but she had always stoically gritted her teeth in an effort to do good and avoid evil sharply distinguishing between good and bad, forever sizing up and passing judgment in every situation. She went about her endeavors to do better, but with her teeth clenched fast. I explained to Miss Okamoto, you come from your mother's womb and leave in your coffin. The time in between you call life, and perhaps you think going into your coffin is death, but true existence is birth and death all the time. 
Our lives appear to be unbroken blocks. But if you look at a candle flame, which seems to burn continuously, actually the wax is burning down bit by bit and the wick that blazes is passing as the flame moves down. When you understand this, you realize that you are a wife or a husband or a spouse, a neighbor to next door. When you look at that, you have these roles and you notice that you are born again and again. You die in each instant and get born again. I told Miss Okamoto, when you go to the kitchen to prepare, prepare dinner, be born in the kitchen. When you finish there, die. When you are born at the dining table as you eat your dinner, be born and when you finish eating, die there. When you go to bed at night, die there. And when you wake up fresh and when you, and if you have cancer, be born with cancer. I've seen many people in practice over the years. I do not know of anyone who so splendidly and thoroughly took my instructions to heart. It wasn't even 10 days before her rigid, rigid countenance had softened into a baby face, into the face of a sweet old lady, an old woman, she had been given permission to leave behind the lifestyle in which she had to grit her teeth and try to live right. Mrs. Miss Okamoto's disease grew progressively worse and she was finally hospitalized. I remember that when I called on her, the doctors and nurses all remarked that though they'd worked in the hospital for many years, they'd never encountered a patient like this one. For by this time that she had entered the hospital, she was greeting everyone and everybody, every scene in the spirit of one chance, one encounter. One chance, one encounter may occur when one encounters a stone, when one comes upon a weed, when one is cleaning the bathroom or cooking rice. It refers to the state of heart and mind in which one makes absolutely no projections of favorability or adversity, but meets life as it is. Before Miss Okamoto died, not long before she died, tending to her, she looked up and said, I've led a pretty stuffy life all these years. So I think I'll just take a ball and go out and play in the woods, play in the woods now. These were her last words. And we, the monks of the temple, placed a beautiful ball of colored threads inside her grave. This story really touches me because we've tried so hard, you know, and it's not that it isn't important to practice. Any good musician knows how you need to practice, but when you become a good musician and you keep practicing, you do it for the joy of it. You practice for the pleasure of it. So as Suzuki Roshi says, yes, there's room for improvement, but not as a goal, not as a judgment, 
but out of the delight of being alive and being able to attend and develop and open in compassion, and tenderness and understanding. You have within you this loving awareness, this loving presence, and there is no trash, nothing that cannot be treated with dignity and respect. And then you learn that meditation and mindfulness is not passive, but it's a way of tending the garden of the earth. You honor your true nature. You honor the birth and death and enlightenment of the Buddha within yourself, this Vesak. I think of a woman who worked in juvenile hall her own mother had died when she was quite young, nine years old. Her sister was eight, died of cancer. And before her mother died, she sewed a beautiful little doll. And one of the last things she did for her children, the two daughters, was to take the doll and cut it in half and say, I've given life to both of you. You were in me and I am in you and I'm always a part of you and put this in their hands. So here this woman was later, one of those girls grown up working in juvenile hall. And there were girls in there, young women who were depressed and suicidal who'd been through terrible things and abused and mistreated culturally and in their families, harming themselves. And on her last day working with them, she got a piece of big piece of paper and made on it a big paper doll. She'd been with the girls for some months and then she cut it into six parts and she gave it part to each one of them and said, I've come to know you and I've come to love you. And I want you to know that I'm with you. You can always carry this. And a year later, she received a letter from one of those girls saying, I went back and finished high school. I'm about to go to community college now. Yes, I felt terrible at times. I thought somehow times of the worst time of killing myself. And then I would take out the part of the doll you gave me and know you were with me. In spite of your regrets, your own share of sorrows and struggles. You too are always held like these girls, held by love, held by the Dharma, held by the universe that you cannot fall out of. And of course, we all have times that we forget, but the one who knows in us, the loving witness, knows that what matters in the end is integrity and generosity and reaching out with care 
and not holding on so tightly as things are born and dying. This is the inner Vesak, being reborn as the one who knows. And it allows you to enter this world with a free heart. And here's the last little bit from Morinaga. If a person is working for wages, shoveling sand onto the bed of a truck with a shovel, they may get tired. Should someone happen along and offer to help them out, they will most likely be glad to hand over the shovel. But suppose a child is playing in a sand pile, scooping sand into a bucket and then pouring it back out. Should someone walk up and offer to take over for a while, the child would balk at such foolishness. Why should I want you to take over when I'm having so much fun? Even the most fleeting of activities, such as the business of preparing a meal or cleaning the community hall or tending what is around you can be what I call the samadhi of play, of bringing your awakening alive from moment to moment. Yes, we need to practice to remember courage and tenderness, to use those skillful means to remind us so we can quiet our mind and tend our heart. And remember that who you are is the awakened one, herself, himself, the blessed one. You are loving awareness, witnessing the dance of this life. And from this place of freedom, from the awareness itself, then you reach out and tend the garden of this world beautifully. So take a moment just to settle with these words. It's not about improving yourself, but living with joy. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.